Yeah, we're good. Thanks, worship team. That was awesome. Uh, thanks for leading us in that way. Um, as I look out this morning, just looking at what Chad and Hannah had just done uh, with um, uh, the, the piece early in the service, I'm conscious as well as I look out here this morning, I don't know a lot of you. And uh, I thought I'd just spend a little bit of uh, time introducing myself. My name's Lyndon, and um, you might normally see me at the back there playing the bass and uh, smiling at the drummer because it's a sweet thing when the drums and the bass are playing together, but that's, uh, that's just an aside. But we've been attending Willow Park Church since 2001. Um, we were one of the original South Starter groups that came over here uh, back in 2003, and there's still a few of us left as I look out into the audience here, and, um, uh, and it's been a wonderful journey. I grew up in South Wales. Now, that was my wife on the stage just then, the pretty uh, blonde, and uh, she is from England, and um, Tracy is also from England, and uh, they just spoke the proper Queen's English. Uh, anything that you get from this point on is probably going to go downhill. I, I grew up in a place called Cardiff. If you're from Cardiff, you say Cardiff. It's horrible. It's got a terrible accent, but... Um, uh, anyway, in South Wales, and I grew up in a Christian home, and uh, I was saved at age 12. And, um, but it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I feel that God really got hold of my life. As a young married man, uh, my wife Laura and I, we got involved in a church plant in a place called Barry in South Wales. It's near Cardiff. It's a really small world, actually, because I, I've got to tell you that John Casorso's mother is from the same hometown that I'm from. So he's half Welsh, and that's why he's such a decent guy. Sorry, John, I just had to, <laughs> I just had to mention that. But uh, it's a small world, really is a small world. But uh, anyway, we went to this church plant, and God really got hold of, of, uh, of my life and gave me a real passion uh, for his church. It says in Ephesians that Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. And I, I believe that to be true. If Christ would give his life for it, then it's something worth being passionate about. Just over 22 years ago, Laura and I, together with our two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, uh, we boarded a British Airways flight to Vancouver with a, a one-way ticket, and we started what would become an amazing adventure of emigrating to Canada and making this place our home. Now, just before we left, the church that we were at threw a party for us. I, I still don't know really how I feel about that. You know, you leave a church and they throw a party for you. But uh, at that party, somebody challenged me to read the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai. Just as a little aside here, my father-in-law at the same time gave me a book on Jonah. Go and figure, Jonah. I guess he felt I was running away with his daughter and granddaughters. Really weird. Anyway, um, uh, just moving on. I was trying to read the book of Haggai, and it's one of those small Old Testament prophets, uh, prophet books buried right at the back of the Old Testament. And that night when I got home, I read this short little book. And I'd like you to turn there now with me to the book of Haggai, if, if, if you would, please. If you have a Bible, the easiest way to find it is go to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and just turn back two books, and you'll find it there. It's only a page so don't turn too fast, okay? And so that night as I read the book, there was a, I was immediately drawn to it. There were a few things which I liked about this book. Firstly, it was short. Two pages, no pictures. Secondly, it was easy to understand. As we read it, you'll see that it has no flowery language. Uh, it's a very easy book to understand. 
And thirdly, it was about building construction. That's something I'm passionate about because I've worked in building construction for just about all my adult life. And this book will always have a special place of relevance in every generation down through the ages because its primary concern is not with the rebuilding of the temple, but rather it's, it's, it's about priorities. Haggai is a book about priorities. And so as I read this book, I am left always with a personal challenge because it's a message that cuts hard into areas of challenge and struggle in my own life. This book is a message of sharp rebuke to a people who had neglected their duties. Their priorities were all wrong. Now, in order to explain what's happening in this book, you're going to have to humor me for a little bit because I'm going to have to take you on a bit of an express trip through the Old Testament, and I'm conscious of time here as well. So if you could just bear with me here. But I want you to think all the way back to Abram. Abram, okay? God came to Abram. And he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And I'm going to give your people a land. And I'm going to change your name from Abraham to Abraham, which is simply a pluralization of his name, which means many. And he was going to become a father in his 90s. Just imagine that for a minute. And his descendants would live in this land where he was wandering as a nomadic farmer. And so Abraham and Sarah, they had a son, and his name was Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. They were twins. And Jacob had 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And so from this one son, this family started to grow. And they were in the land of Egypt at the time. And I haven't got time to go into why they were in Egypt. But just bear, bear with me. They were in Egypt and his family starts to grow. And they, they, they grow so large that they start to intimidate the Egyptian people there. And so they're enslaved by the Egyptians. And God comes in a mighty way, and he delivers his people from bondage and slavery in Egypt, and he brings them out into the wilderness. They were a people of about three million by that time. And so he brings them through the wilderness, and eventually after wandering around in the wilderness, he brings them into the promised land, the land that says, you can read about this in the book of Joshua, okay? They come into the land, they come through the, river Jer- the, the Jordan River, and they come in and they subdue the land. It's really interesting reading the, the, the history of the people there. They come in and they defeat all the different kingdoms that were living in the land. And then in the second half of, jo- book, half of the book of Joshua, we see how each individual family tribe was to go in and take possession of their own land. They were subdue, to, to subdue it. God was going to be their king. He was their king. It wasn't a, a, a monarchy. It wasn't a democracy. But rather, rather, it was a theocracy where God would lead this nation through various judges who were leaders at the time the people would, would come into, uh, in, into trouble. God was their king. After a while, the people turned around and they said, hey, God, we don't want you as our king. We want to have a, an earthly king like all the other nations around us. And God said, well, I'm not going to give you that. I'm your king. But they kept on at him. God, give us a king. God, give us a king. So, so in the end, God gave them a king. He gave them Saul. He was their first king. The Bible says there there was nobody like him in the land. He was tall. He was dark. He was handsome. Little like Justin Trudeau. Um, But 
Sorry, Charlotte, I did say I would make no political show. Just a little one, okay. Uh, unfortunately, just like uh, Justin, he wasn't quite ready. And um, the, the king... <laughs> and so the kingdom was wrestled from his hands and given to Andrew. I mean, it was given to David. Um, I, I must stop. I'm getting all these names confused. No, God took the kingdom from Saul and he gave it to the house of Jesse. And so David became king. And he said to David, I'm going to make you my king and through you will come a king of kings. And so we see that David, he was a, he was a warrior. He was a, a military man. He was a great leader. And he extended the kingdom of Israel to its absolute pinnacle. And in doing that, the, the nation became very, very wealthy. And he said, he said, God, I want to build you a temple. And God said, no, David, you're not going to build me a temple. Your son Solomon, he's going to build my temple. You're a fighting man. I'm going to give the, the work of building a temple to a man of peace. And so we see David died and his son Solomon came in. And Solomon the, the nation's at its prime now. Think Britain like 150 years ago and uh, all the mega building projects and stuff like that. That's exactly what Solomon was doing. He built this magnificent temple in Jerusalem. It would have been one of the seven wonders of the world. You can read all about it in the book of Kings. It would have been just an amazing structure, an amazing building. And after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam took the throne and the people came to him and said, look, your father, he built a lot of stuff. He spent a lot of money, and he taxed us hard. You need to release us from this tax burden. And he didn't. And what happened, the northern tribes of Israel, they separated off, and they elected Jeroboam as their king. And they did something else as well. They, they set up two false apostate temples, one in Bethel and one in Dan, and they set up Shechem, as their capital, not Jerusalem. And so what we see now is a, is a divided nation, a nation that's in decline, a nation that's turning further and further away from God and his laws. The people turn to idolatry, and God in his mercy would send a prophet, but the people, they would turn, repent, but then they would just drift back again. And eventually in 722 BC, the northern nation is defeated by the Assyrian Empire. And they're taken away and they're just, just dispersed into that, into that land, into captivity, no more. And then not long after that, in 605 BC, the, the kingdom of Judah, those two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they fell into captivity as well. Nebuchadnezzar came with a great army. He came three times, actually, and he besieged the city. The first time he besieged the city, he, took off, he, he would have taken off Daniel and, and his men into captivity. You can read about it in 2 Kings 24. And then he, he set up a governor in place, and, and, and he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, so he came back again. And this time he besieged the city again. He starved it out. And in a second wave of exiles that went, guys like Ezekiel would have been there. He appointed another governor to look after Jerusalem. And again, that governor turned against Nebuchadnezzar. So this time, Nebuchadnezzar came with his army. And not only did he take off everybody who was left and just left the poorest there, he completely annihilated and destroyed that city. He broke down the walls. He broke down the temple. And there was nothing but rubble left. The nation had failed. They refused to listen to God's word. They refused to be moved by the warnings to repent 
And so God sent the Babylonians to punish them. Now, while the people were in Judah, they were there totally in, in Babylon, sorry, while they were in exile in Babylon, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the, the Medes and the Persians. And eventually, after 70 years of captivity, Cyrus, king of Persia, became king. And he issued a decree permitting some of the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild a temple. You can read about it in Ezra chapter 1. And so approximately uh, 50,000 Jews, they were led by a guy called Zerubbabel, he was the governor, and a high priest called Joshua. They returned to the ruined city of Jerusalem and they started work on rebuilding the temple. The temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed, they started to build it again. Now, they didn't get very far. They laid the foundation, and it would have been a stone foundation. Um, They stopped work due to opposition from neighbors that were surrounding them. They started to build, and then the, the oppression came, the opposition came, and they stopped building. And so when we get to Haggai chapter 1, 16 years have passed, and they've still got no further Nothing had been done except a foundation. And so we're here. Haggai chapter 1. Let's read verse 1. It says this. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, the second year of Darius... That marks the time in history for us. It was about 520 BC. The first day of the sixth month marks the point in the Jewish calendar for us. It would have been around August, September. It would have been around our harvest time. Now, the Jewish calendar was based on a lunar month. And so verse 1 tells us that it was on the first day at the new moon of the sixth sixth month. What was the significance of this? It dates... And times are always important in the Bible. Okay? Why is it so precise? Well, the answer can be found in Numbers chapter 10, verse 10. It says, At your times of rejoicing, your appointed feasts and new moon festivals, you are to sound the trumpet over your burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before God. I am the Lord your God. So the sounding of the trumpet was a time when the community of God's people would gather together at the temple. It would have been a time of rejoicing. It would have been a time of celebration. It was a time of new beginnings, just like our new year when we party. But instead of it being a time of rejoicing, it was more like an anticlimax. Just a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but as you look at each one of these prophecies in this book of Haggai, each one of them, there's four of them, Each one of them comes on a significant date in the Jewish calendar. Each prophecy fell on a significant day. We've just heard about the first one, the New Moon Festival. Chapter 2, verse 1, if you look at that, it says it's on the 21st day of the month was the Feast of Trumpets. That's the Feast of Rosh Hashanah. And you can read all about that in Numbers 29. It would have been a day of no work, like one of our public holidays. The people would come together, sound the trumpets, and prepare burnt offerings. You might be thinking to yourself, well, this is all very interesting, Lena, but what is the point of this discourse? I'll tell you what the point is. It's this. In each one of those significant days, there was nowhere for the people to gather, to worship, and to come together 
and celebrate. There was nowhere for them to gather as a community of God's people because they hadn't built the temple. They neglected it for 16 years. They had shifted the most important thing out of the picture. They had put the worship of the Lord out of their list of priorities. The temple was just a foundation for 16 years. They didn't do anything. No, there's nothing exciting about a foundation. I can't see Pete Hannenberg here this morning, but I guess he'd be about the only one in this congregation who'd be excited. His wife's laughing here because he's a geotech engineer. You give that guy a bucket and a shovel, goodness, he'll sub-excavate a whole basement. You know, he's just a machine, that guy. But he loves dirt. I've been on a few projects with him, and he gets really excited when he's in the dirt. But really, honestly, there's nothing exciting about a foundation. It's just a hole in the ground, maybe some concrete. It's not unless you've seen the plans that you get inspired, right? It's not until the building starts to rise out of the ground. And so on this day in history, the word of the Lord comes through the prophet Haggai to the leaders of the community, Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the high priest. God addresses the leaders of that community. And this is what he said to them. He said, verse 2, look at verse 2. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty say. These people say... The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. What were they saying? What were they saying? Well, they weren't saying, we won't build the house. Basically, they were saying, uh, it, it's not quite time yet. It's not quite time yet to, to rebuild the, the, the Lord's house. Eugene Peterson, in his, his message, the, para, the paraphrase, the message, he puts it like this. He says, the people procrastinate. They say this isn't the right time to rebuild my temple, the temple of God. They wanted to do other things first. They procrastinated. They put off doing what they should have done. I am the world's worst procrastinator. You just ask my wife. And sometimes it gets me in real trouble, like this year when I didn't chop down four large poplar trees that were rotting from the inside out, and one of them fell into the schoolyard. This happened at the end of May during that big, big storm we got. It cost me $4,000 to try and find a guy with a chainsaw to hack those trees down because every guy with a chainsaw at the end of May in this town was down on the foreshore cutting up decks after that storm. But procrastination, it can get you in real trouble. And there is a tendency in all of us, if we're going to be honest, isn't there, to put off doing what we should be doing. There is a great deal of of truth in this saying that there is no time like the present. And at every stage of our lives, we we allow other things to be first, don't we? For example, if you're young this morning, it might be, well, I want to do school. I want to spend time with friends. These are all legitimate things. How about young adults? Maybe you want to have fun. You want to have travel and leisure and, and study more. In your 30s and 40s, maybe we're, we're, we're building a career and we're getting married and we're raising kids. And then in fit, when we're in our 50s, we, we want to go back and maybe catch up on some of the stuff that we've missed out on. And we never intend not to put God in his things first, do we? In fact, we know that we should and we fully intend doing this after the pressures of life have lessened a little well, life just speeds by, doesn't it? As I get older, I am more conscious of how quickly time flies by. Goodness, we're, we're nearly three quarters of the way through this year already. It's nearly Christmas, isn't it? It's just around the corner. And as I look back, I think, where have the years gone? 
And so we make all kinds of excuses, don't we? We say, well, I'll spend more time on the Lord's projects when my family are all grown up. Or we say, I'll give more money to the church when my mortgage is paid down. But really the question is, if it's not now, then when? If if it's not now, then when are we going to do it? Let's be honest, because if it isn't now, very likely it will never be. You see, there is no time like the present. No time like the present. When it comes to salvation, the scriptures tell us, I tell you, now is the day of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. Now is the day. Because if it's not today, it likely will never be. That was the problem. Their priorities were all wrong. There'd been no shortage of activity, but it had been channeled in the wrong direction, hadn't it? Look at verses 3 and 4. This is what it says. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, It is a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin. You see, they had found time to build their own houses. Opposition from enemies didn't seem to be too much of a distraction when it came to building their own homes. In fact, this verse tells us they, they, they actually built really nice homes for themselves. The, the reference there to, to paneled housing was the practice of taking ornate rare woods and lining the walls of the house and the ceilings of your house with it. You see, they found time, effort, energy, resources to build their own stuff, yet the house of the Lord remained a ruin. And so as we come back to the passage in verses 3 to 6, Haggai challenges them. What have you got to show for all your effort, he says. He points them back to the past. What have you got to show for all your efforts? Verse 5 says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put clothes on, but are not worn. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. God was judging them in respect of their material things, and the people had failed to recognize it as God's judgment. Hebrews 12 verse 7 tells us this. It says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? And so as a loving father, the Lord disciplines his children. When God disciplines us, there's a reason for it. And so the Lord points them back to their past and he says, what have you got to show for it? He says this, give careful thought to your ways. This expression occurs four times in this book. God is trying to get their attention. He says, give careful thought to your ways. He was asking them to take a personal inventory, to examine their own hearts, to see why God was disciplining them in this way. What have you got to show for how you have been living? That's what he tells them. And so the Lord challenges them in all areas of their life. Look at verse 5 again. It says, You have planted much, but harvested little. Can you imagine that? They've got a big dilemma, haven't they? What are they going to do with the seed that they've got left? Are they going to use it and eat it, or are they going to save it and plant it? They were frustrated. You drink, it says, but you never have your fill. It's like your thirst never get quenched. It's, it's like when you have too much salty bacon in the morning. Do you know what I mean? And you chug water 
And it doesn't matter how much water you chug. It's like you're thirsty for the day. That's what it was like for them. It says you put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And the thought here is that their expenses are always one step ahead of their income. It sounds so familiar, doesn't it? It's a cry of so many today. This is what, I just can't seem to get ahead. And God disappointed them in all their expectations because they had neglected his work. They were trying to explain their situation in their, only way, in their own way, but never once did they attribute their, their, their situation and bad fortune to their own disobedience. Their self-centered attitude had got them nowhere. And so God says, give careful thought to your ways. What about us today? Difficulties come for a purpose, don't they? In the Old Testament, the blessings that came to God's people were physical blessings. It tells us in Second Chronicles, it says a familiar verse to you. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will bless them from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Physical blessings. This nation was to be a light and a testimony of God's goodness, of God's grace. In contrast, in the New Testament, the blessings that flow to Christians, they're they're spiritual, not physical. You can read all about them in Ephesians chapter 1. It says says he's chosen us to be holy, to be redeemed, to be be blameless. It talks about grace freely given, about redemption, about forgiveness of sins, about righteousness, about wisdom and understanding. We are sons of God. We are adopted into his family. We have an inheritance that is reserved for us, imperishable. I'm not into the the health and wealth prosperity gospel at all. It's garbage. But I need to ask you this morning, are you experiencing difficulties? Has, Has the joy of your salvation gone? Have you lost that sense of assurance? Are you experiencing God's peace in your life? Does God seem distant to you? Maybe God is trying to tell you something and get your attention. You see, God is trying to develop within each one of us something valuable in our hearts that will last for all eternity. And so God says, give careful thought to your ways. Take an inventory. Do some self-judgment. This is where I personally find this book so challenging. In the areas of my finance, am I giving to God first? With my time, am I making his ministry, his work, his word my priority? With service, do I, do I do it joyfully or has it become a drudgery? How I use my time, my resources, my, my, the things God gives me is often a good indicator as to what is most important in my life. And so often my spiritual life can be like the situation described here in Haggai chapter 1. So often I can get, give time, money, energy, effort, everything to things that yield little joy in the spiritual sense. You see, there is a kind of eating and drinking which gives no satisfaction to our spiritual lives. We can surround our lives with objects and things which bring us no real warmth to our souls. And we can sacrifice so much for our goals and often find that we have so little to show for it. You see, life is a question of priorities, isn't it? 
10 years ago, I, I decided to start a company. And when I said yes to doing business, uh, um, I said no to other things. You see, if you, if you pursue one thing, you will have to sacrifice another. Consider your ways. That's what it says. You see, every time I say yes to something, I'm saying no to something else. They may be good things, but maybe not the best things, God's things. And often is God is crowded out. He gets crowded out, doesn't he? Because he's not there going, me, 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 me. Whereas we've got all these other things going, me, 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 me. My wife will laugh, but she's always singing me, singing me this jingle. She says, you're just a guy that can't say no. I didn't sing it very well, but she's always reminding me of that. I'm just a guy that can't say no. I am the world's worst people pleaser. And over the past year, with some help, I've had to learn to say no to a lot of things. (laughs) It's really difficult. But at the same time, it's really freeing. When we say yes to something, we say no to something else. It's all a question of priorities, isn't it? And what I need is for God to have priority over me. That's what I ultimately need. Everyone has enough time. If we're honest here this morning, everybody has enough time, enough money, enough resources to give some of it to God. But let's consider this. Do we have enough time and resources to give to God and enjoy the dream lifestyle and everything else that we want? Probably not. And so what did God want them to do? He points them to the future. This is what I want you to do, he says. This is the solution. Look at verse 8. It says this. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build a house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. He wants them to do three things. He wants them to go up into the mountains. He wants them to bring down timber. And he wants them to build a house. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? Well, it is. It is. It's meant to be. He wants them to go to work. I can honestly tell you that all the years I've worked in building construction, I've never seen the logs just roll down out of the mountains as two-by-fours. I've never seen the concrete just bubble up out of the ground. Strange that, isn't it? No, it requires work. It requires effort. It requires somebody to chop down the tree, and then the the wood has to be milled and planed and, 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 and made into useful resources for building. And this is what he wants them to do. He wants them to build the temple. He wants them to put effort into it, put their back into it. The people had grown lazy, and they had tried to conceal their laziness with with lame excuses like, ah, yeah, it's it's not quite the time. But they'd been making excuses for 16 years, and God tells them to get on with it. So you can imagine the people uh, asking the question, how will going up into the mountains, bringing down wood and building the Lord's house, feed my family. The answer is this. You've done it your way all of these years and it hasn't worked for you. Now do it my way. Look at verses 9 to 11 there. It says this. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. 
I call for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. You know what? The message of Haggai could be summed up in one New Testament verse, and it says this, Matthew 6, verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. There's a great principle here, isn't it? I found it so true to be in, all, in my life. When we put God's things first in our lives, other things just seem to take care of themselves, don't they? And so the motivation is what's not in it for me. Rather, what can I do to contribute which will result in God taking pleasure and being honored? What was the people's response? I'll, I'll wrap up quite quickly here. Time's moving on. What was the people's response? It says this in verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel son of Sheltiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people, all the exiles who returned, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. The people did two things. They did two things. They obeyed the voice of the Lord, and they feared the Lord. Thomas Kempis says this, instant obedience is the only kind of obedience there is. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Whoever strives to withdraw from obedience withdraws from God's from, from grace. Our obedience to God shows our love for God, doesn't it? In John 14, verse 15, it says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And in John 14, verse 21, it says, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And so the evidence as, whether, as to whether we, we, we love Jesus or not is very simple, isn't it? Do we obey his words? Our obedience to God shows our faith in God, doesn't it? It shows our measure of faith. Romans 1 verse 5 talks about faith, obedience that comes from faith. So I read the scriptures. I'm often completely amazed what God asks certain individuals to do in faith. Take Noah, for instance. God comes to him and he says, No, I, I need you to do something for me. Will you do something for me? Will you spend the thick end of your adult life building me a boat? People are going to laugh at you. They're going to mock you. But would you do that for me? Take Abraham... God comes to him and says, Abraham, I need you to do something for me. I need you to leave the safety of your family, the land where you grew up, and I want you to, to go to a strange land and trust me because I'm going to do something great for you through you. Will you do that for me? I'm just amazed at what God asks some people to do. And so one step forward in obedience is worth years of study about it, isn't it? It's a quote from Oswald Chambers. Not only did they obey the Lord, they feared the Lord. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They obeyed the Lord and they had a healthy fear of the Lord. That's the tension that exists between loving God and not wanting to displease him. The temple that God is now building is not a structure of wood and stone. Rather, it's one of flesh and spirit. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple 
and that God's spirit lives in you. That's what it tells us in 1 Corinthians. God is building his church, and the church comprises simply of all those who, by an act of faith, are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for the forgiveness of their sins. And so God is building a community of faith, a place where God lives and dwells amongst his people. Pastor Glenn has a great vision for this place and the leaders, don't they? That we might reach the mission, this city, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a huge vision. And I often find it difficult to wrap my head around it. But if we're going to fulfill this vision, it's going to take a lot of effort, isn't it? It's going to take a lot of effort, a lot of sacrifice. It's going to mean each believer fulfilling their function within the body, the church. And so the challenge goes out. Have we been putting our own needs first, legitimate as they might appear, or are we putting God's agenda first? God may be asking you to make a change in your priorities. He might be trying to get your attention through the circumstances of your life and be saying to you, give careful thought to your ways. Take an inventory. Don't be like those Jewish remnants who put off God's things. Now is the time. Right here, right now, today. All that I am is yours, Lord. All that I have is yours, Lord. Don't just sit there. Let's do it. We haven't got time to look at it today, but if you look at the second prophecy in this book in chapter 2, they start to build a temple, and as the temple starts to come up out of the ground, the people look at it and they start to weep. Because there were people in that group of people who remembered Solomon's temple in all its splendor and in its, all its glory. And the people start to weep. But Haggai comes along with a word from the Lord and he encourages them to keep going. Do you know what? There's an even better temple being built for us in heaven. God is preparing a place for us as his followers in heaven. And I can't but help and think this as I read this book. And when I get there, and I look at heaven in all its glory, then I might not think, I wish I'd got my priorities a little different. I wish I'd given more. I wish I'd served more. I wish I'd done more. And so we have an opportunity right now to serve God. I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come up and play. And uh, Tracy's going to come and close the service out. We'll be uh, open for prayer afterwards. The team will be here. Um, but I'm just going to pray while the, the worship team comes up. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's relevant to every generation right down through the years and its message is still fresh to us even today. Father, forgive us when we seek to build a heaven here and now rather than investing our time, energy and effort in building what you would want us to build in your church, this kingdom on earth. Lord, give us the courage to faithfully trust you, to walk in obedience, to not quench your spirit, but to say yes to the things that you call us to do. We thank you for this book of Haggai, that there was that promise that you will be with us, that you will give us strength. 
And that is what we ask, Father, that you might strengthen us. Give us a vision of what you want to do here in this wonderful place we call home. Can we ask these things in Jesus' precious name? Amen.